0: changed a messenger a a holy one came down from heaven and, and called in a loud voice he said cut down the tree cut down the tree and trim off its branches strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches but let the stump and its roots bound with bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field and this dream, this dream doesn't get any better. The messenger goes on to say that his mind would be changed from that of a man to that of an animal until seven times passed for him. And that this was the verdict of the Most High God. Then Daniel, Daniel the main man here, he joins a story and he, he interprets the dream. And we become aware here of some strange respect uh, An uneasy friendship, I don't know. But there's something here, something between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, because Daniel's moved. Daniel seemed concerned. It says that Daniel was perplexed for a time and that his thoughts terrified him. And there is, I think, something here for us. Something about the importance of truth-telling and truth-receiving. Because Daniel, Daniel could have left it there having heard the dream and backed out all afraid and scared. Backed out of the presence of the king. But he didn't. He had the courage to back it up with the interpretation, with the truth. And with some advice, Daniel was a truth teller. And strangely, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had learned to receive the truth. The truth from Daniel, his most trusted man. And he said to Daniel, Belshazzar, that was his name in Babylon. Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. It's like Nebuchadnezzar said, I want to hear the truth. I want to release you to speak the truth. I can deal with the outcome myself. Only tell me straight. Tell me what's going on here. And for us, us, how good are we at speaking into each other's lives? I've come to realize that in what I say, there can be a lot of truth, but some error as well. And that we must, we must, all of us, in in front of God, we must work to know and to understand the truth. So that we can cut down on any error that may come in. And then we need to be courageous. We need to be courageous with the truth that we do know. And if it affects someone else's life, something we see in them. Something we see that is damaging or out of order or some encouragement that we need to speak. Then we have the responsibility to say it. To speak it to them. And to speak it with sensitivity and respect. That's speaking the truth. And then there's receiving the truth. Releasing people, giving them permission to speak into our lives. We've all got blind spots. We've all got them, things we don't see or or know about ourselves. Things that could be harming us or harming others through us. And I want to know those things about me, even if it's not easy to listen. And I'm sure we would want to know those things about us. And we'd want to hear them from our friends, people that love us and care for us, and not from people who may not have our best interests at heart. Let's be truth tellers, speaking into each other's lives. Let's be truth receivers, giving people permission to speak into our lives. Let's become trusted people like Daniel. And coming back to the story. In Daniel, there is concern, concern for Nebuchadnezzar. And he said, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies. But no, but no, this dream was for Nebuchadnezzar. He was that tree. He was that enormous tree and he would be cut down and bound with bronze and his mind would be changed from a man to an animal. It wasn't looking good for him by anyone's standards. And Daniel knew that. And then Daniel speaks with hope and compassion for the king and he says therefore O king be pleased to accept my advice renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed it may be that then your prosperity will continue it was 12 months later when it happened the king was walking on the the flat roof of his palace looking out over the great city of babylon When he spoke these words. is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence. By my mighty power. And of the glory of my majesty. And it's scary. It's scary just how fast the judgment of God falls. The words were still on Nebuchadnezzar's lips. When a voice came from heaven and told him. That he would be driven from the people. He would live with the animals. And eat grass like cattle. And immediately... What had been warned, immediately it happened. The Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar was driven from the people. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven. His hair grew like feathers. His nails like the claws of a bird. Then at the end of that time, it says that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, now living like an animal, raised his eyes towards heaven and his sanity was restored. And I want to stop there. I want to stop there. That's the story. The story so far, a dream of a tree interpreted by Daniel. The king becomes like an animal and then it's restored. Easy. <laughs> but there's a, there's a question. There's a question in this for me. And it's where I think God's been speaking. The question is, what happened? What happened between the praise? What happened between the praise? Chapter 4. Chapter 4 starts in verse 2 with Nebuchadnezzar praising God. And chapter 4 finishes in verse 37 with Nebuchadnezzar praising God. But in between the praise, Nebuchadnezzar becomes like an animal. And I don't know about you, but as I read this through, it seems somehow out of proportion. And I can only say that the life of Nebuchadnezzar was out of proportion. Everything was out of proportion. The kingdom, the dreams, the interpretations, the, the judgment. This was an exceptional relationship between a ruler on the earth. And the ruler of heaven. Between a man and the the one true God. But, and this is important. Even though out of proportion, what we see here, the lessons learned, are so relevant to our more everyday lives. And I think that's great. That God does that. That sometimes he says, I'm going to blow this up really big so that we can all see it. So for us, in our lives, what happens between the praise what happens between the praise and often this is a week between praising God this Sunday and praising God next Sunday what happens when we're at home when we're out when we're working or studying or relaxing our life our faith must be consistent who we are here our character and our convictions here in this faith community is who we are there with friends with our partner, with our children, with unbelievers, with work colleagues out and about in the world. Who we are here in this faith community needs to be who we are there, out in the world. If my life, if my life, if your life through the week could be watched right here and now on this screen, could we own it? Could we watch it? Could we watch it with this faith community? Or do we feel anxious even ashamed concerned at what was coming and what was happening between the praise what happens between the praise what happened between the praise for Nebuchadnezzar was strange even by the bible standard it was strange going from a man to being like an animal and why did why did god's judgment fall what entered nebuchadnezzar's heart that so enraged god and the answer is pride pride it was there at the start, when Nebuchadnezzar was contented and, and prosperous, and it was definitely there when he looked out over the city of Babylon, and he claimed to have built it himself by his own might and his own power and for his own glory. And pride is so damaging. Abraham Lincoln once said, "Nearly all men, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power." we can think I'm not powerful I'm not powerful but compared to 80% of the world we live like kings and in our relationships in groups at work as managers or bosses as friends husbands wives parents most of us will hold power a relational or emotional influence over others and pride can enter our hearts at any time and it can take over and it can influence how we act and, and what we say And pride isn't about being an extrovert or an introvert. Because I think sometimes we can make that mistake and think if someone is loud, then they're showing off. But extroverts and introverts are equally vulnerable to pride. Pride. Pride is about the condition of our heart. And pride is about getting a right understanding of who we are in front of God. And God, and this is where it gets personal to us, God is actively opposed to pride. And so many times through the Bible, he deals with it in his people. And there's a a repeating phrase that comes out in Proverbs and in James, and it says, God opposes the proud. He opposes them, but he gives grace to the humble. I've never liked the idea personally of being opposed by God, because I know who's going to win that contest. So let's do it for ourselves first. Deal with any pride in us and humble ourselves. And it's God who's going to lift us up. It's God who's going to lift us up. And what I thought, what I thought, what an image that is. See, this isn't just about us. This is about God and who he is. That he, God, is the holder of all power. And equally, God is the holder of all humility. God, the Lord of the universe, reaches down. To lift us up. About six months ago, I read a book called The Interior Castle by St. Teresa of Avila. Anyone heard of that? Anyone? Hi. Hey, not a popular book. It's probably not going to be book of the month. <laughs> it says on the back, it says on the back that it's a, a masterpiece of spiritual literature. I'm sure it is, but sometimes I'm there reading it and I'm thinking... don't understand a word of this (laughs) but then then you get something you get something some insight that brings it to life and writing about humility Saint Teresa says this she says humility must always be doing its work like a bee making honey in the hive without humility all will be lost still we should remember that the bee is constantly flying about from flower to flower And in the same way, believe me, the soul must sometimes emerge from self-knowledge and soar aloft in meditation upon the greatness and the majesty of its God. And I'm thinking, I was with you for the first part, Teresa, but then you lost me again. (laughs) (laughs) Humility. Humility must always be doing its work in our lives. Removing the impure. Creating the pure in us. Creating the the sacred, the, the holy in us. And we're going to move now. We're going to move from this thought to communion. We're going to move to communion. And I'd like us to, to think about that. God. God, the holder of all power, is equally the holder of all humility. And 2,000 years ago, God in Jesus, He reached down to lift us up. And He walked with us for a time. And in his hands, one night he took bread and he took wine. And he made that connection with his body and with his blood. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to take communion together. We've got four different points laid out. And there's going to be two servers on each. If the servers want to come forward and go to those points. Lee and the band are going to play in the background. And we're going to just think on that. God reached down to lift us up. And then just when you feel ready, just come to one of the tables and take communion. Just come in groups. And when that group clears, then the next group can come. Just feel relaxed about that. And I'm going to pray now. And we're going to listen. And we're going to wait on God. God, I pray that you'd speak to each of us. Lord, you reached down in Jesus. And that was the ultimate act of humility and sacrifice. And Lord, we want to remember that. And we want to connect with that now through the bread and the wine. God, just as we rest now in your presence, speak into our lives. Lord, all of us are vulnerable to pride and the effects of that. And God, I pray that through your spirit, you'd reveal in us wherever pride has got a hold. Lord, wherever sin has got a hold. And Lord, just in these moments, we would speak to you and do business with you. And God, we'd allow you to come in and minister to us. Lord, with your forgiveness and your grace, Lord, you'd release us to to come to the table and remember you and your sacrifice. Lord, speak to us now through this time. Let's pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.
1: There my shame you have washed. stretched your arms out wide. I lift my hands up high to my Savior. You stretched your arms out wide. I lift my hands up high to my Savior. Your arms out white I lift my hands up high. See myself. Let's again. You are worthy, you are wonderful, for your glory, take all of me, take all of me, take
0: This is a a moment to individually commit yourself to God. In your heart, maybe speak it out, but it's between you and God. Commit yourself to God in this moment and then we'll move from it. you hear our hearts you know what we've just said to you and that's what's important and God you take us at our word and we take you at your word and as we commit ourselves to you you commit yourself to us And lead us because we're committed to following you. God, I pray you continue to speak right now. Lord, you take this moment and extend it just as we go into your word again. Lord, continue to speak. Pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. take your seats. It's a a common phrase, a common phrase. You hear people say it, the writing. The writing is on the wall, and it's like it's already been decided. Your fate is sealed, and nothing is going to change that. You've just got to accept it and let it happen. And as we Go back to the story. We're about to see that happen. King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, died in 562 BC, and after various political maneuvers, it's Belshazzar. Belshazzar, the, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, that is co-regent and, and ruler of the city of Babylon. And starting, starting in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, it says says, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. And the writer here, the writer is subtle, he is clever in his description of the scene. Talking about nobles and wine and wives and, and concubines and sane enough but not descending to the level of what was happening. And I think we get the scene. There's men and there's alcohol and there's power and the king's harem of women. And then... Then as the king and the, the nobles drank and praised the gods of gold and silver, the gods of bronze and iron and wood and stone, the fingers of a human hand appeared. And you can imagine the noise. You can imagine the, the drunken activity. Suddenly silence, suddenly held fast as everyone stared at the hand. And then it wrote. It wrote on the plaster of the wall. And the king watched as the hand wrote and his face turned pale and he was overcome with fear and his legs gave way and he he fell. And it would have been, it would have been an ugly scene as Daniel, as Daniel walked into it, over 80 years old now, probably grey haired, he was aged, he was slower in his movements as he walked across that room and yet... Even in his 80s, even in his 80s, he carried the presence of God, that same presence that from his teenage years had resisted the Babylonian gods and culture, that had prayed, that had lived a a faith-filled and courageous life that still spoke. You see the decades. The decades shouldn't disqualify us. The decades we live through should add to the presence of God in our lives. They should add to the wisdom and the influence that we have. And as a a 30-year-old, I need, we need 50, 60, 70, 80-year-olds that have lived faith-filled lives. We need them praying for us and speaking into our lives. And in that moment, in that moment, Daniel, the, the man of God, would have looked around the room. And he would have known what had been happening. He would have known how opposed to his God these nobles and this king was. And there, and there, still in their hands, still at their mouths, he would have recognized them. Recognized the gold goblets. The gold goblets that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And it would have been the first time that Daniel had seen them since he was a child. A child going into the temple in Jerusalem. That incredible building. That incredible building built to glorify the name of God. And now after being forced into exile years later, they were here in Babylon. The gold goblets, the sacred, the holy goblets from the temple. And they were being used and abused. And if ever you wanted to anger God, then this was it times ten. And you can sense the controlled rage as Daniel spoke here. As he refused Belshazzar's offer of position and power. And as he retold the story of King Nebuchadnezzar and God's judgments over his life. And then in verses 22 to 23, he condemns Belshazzar and he says, But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this, instead you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And it's those two words there that are so powerful. You knew. You knew. Belshazzar's grandfather was Nebuchadnezzar. And he had seen, he had read, he had known about the dreams and the interpretations about Nebuchadnezzar being driven from the people as God dealt with his pride. Belshazzar knew. He knew, but he still set himself up against the Lord of heaven. And for us, how often do we know How often do we know that something we've said or something we've done is wrong in front of God, and yet we still do it? And God could say to us, you knew, you knew. You knew what the outcome would be. You knew it wouldn't be good, and yet you still did it. Two powerful words, you knew. In verses 25 to 28, Daniel reads the the writing on the wall. It says, this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, passing. And this is what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. God had judged and he had been condemned. The writing, the writing was on the wall for Belshazzar. And I don't know about you, but I find this all pretty hair-raising, all pretty hair-raising. I remember as a a child growing up and and being being scared and lying awake worrying about judgment day. And as I think back, I don't know where that came from. Maybe some over-enthusiastic Sunday school teacher. And maybe now, maybe now, we don't hear that much about judgment. Is that a good thing? Often, yes, I think it is. I think it is a good thing because this... This here, this Bible is the gospel of good news. The gospel of good news. Good news for salvation and freedom. And not bad news. It says, for God so loved the world. God loves, not hates. God came to save, not to condemn. But sometimes, I think no. Because we can become complacent. And then when we read about judgment, it comes as a, a shock. And we can't connect it with what we know of God that he is loving, that he is caring, that he is our closest friend, and he is, but that can become an imbalanced view of God. Because God is God. God is God. God is holy. God is sacred. God is the judge of all the earth. And I still can't help thinking, there is something fearful about him. But it's a a right fear. It's a, a reverent fear. A fear that causes us to get on our knees before God and worship him. Coming out of the story, out of the story of Daniel and going into the New Testament, in Matthew 25, Jesus used a a parable, a parable to tell us about the day of judgment. It's called the sheep and the goats. And again, it's pretty hair-raising when you read it through as it describes the the separation of people as a, a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. But what gets me about this is the measure That is used here. It isn't something that is super spiritual. It's something that is very practical. It's about giving the hungry something to eat. About giving the thirsty something to drink. About giving the stranger somewhere to stay. Giving the naked something to wear. Looking after the sick. Visiting the imprisoned. It's very practical. And whatever we do for one of the least. God says that we do it for him. And for me, when we're talking about judgment, there are three more things that I get from this. Firstly, Jesus keeps the urgency for our personal decision to come to him and believe and be forgiven. Secondly, Jesus keeps the accountability for our actions. And this is a day in and day out obedience. And thirdly, Jesus keeps the integrity for our hearts. God doesn't get distracted by showmanship. The measure he uses is relational. And it's very practical. Coming back to the story, we're getting to the finish now. But there's one final question here for me, and it's about Nebuchadnezzar. There were moments, moments in Nebuchadnezzar's life when Daniel walked in and told him about God. Moments when interpreting the dreams through the supernatural, through Daniel, living out a faith-filled and courageous life for the decades that Nebuchadnezzar came to realise that Daniel's God was the one true God. And in Daniel chapter 4 verse 37 it says this, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify the King of heaven. Because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And you think, you think was this Nebuchadnezzar finally getting it? I know Jesus was a a long way off in time. But was this the king finally admitting his need for forgiveness and for salvation? I don't think that question can be answered for definite. But the end of chapter 4. The end of chapter 4 does stand in contrast with the end of chapter 5. Where in verse 30 there are no words of recognition or repentance from Belshazzar. Only silence. And the statement that, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. He was killed. And there is something important for us in this contrast. Because through the Bible, this contrast happens a number of times. It happens when Jesus tells a parable. He tells a parable about two men that entered the temple to pray. And one was a a Pharisee, very important, who stood up and prayed about himself. And he was telling God just how great he was. The other... The other was a tax collector and he wouldn't even look up to heaven. And he prayed, God have mercy on me, a sinner. There is the contrast, one being confident, the other being honest and open with God. And Jesus said, I tell you that this man, this man rather than the other went home justified before God. And this contrast, this same contrast happens at the scene of the the crucifixion when Jesus was nailed to a cross and dying. And either side of him hung two thieves, one on his right and one on his left. The one shouted abuse, but the other stopped him because he realized his own need for personal forgiveness. And Jesus answered him and said, i tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus lived. Jesus lived and Jesus died. And Jesus rose again to say the writing doesn't have to be on the wall for our lives. We can start again. We can be forgiven, we can be saved, we can be set free, we can have life and have it to the full. We only have to realise, we only have to realise our personal need for him. Our personal need for forgiveness. That we can't do it on our own. And we only have to ask Jesus to come into our lives. And it's John 3, John 3 verse 16 that I want to finish with here. And then we're going to pray, and we're going to praise God for his words of salvation. So I'm going to read this through one final time. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your words of salvation. God, not only words, but action. God, I thank you for the cross, that you died for us. Lord, that you put those words into action and we saw it demonstrated so powerfully in your son. God, I pray right now. If there's anybody here who does not know you, Lord, you'd speak to them. Lord, you'd speak through your spirit. Lord, and we all, we all recognise our need for forgiveness day to day. Lord, we never stop needing that cross. We never stop needing that forgiveness and freedom that you bring into our lives. God, speak to us. You came to save us. You came to set us free. You came to give us life to the full. And as believers and followers of you, Christ, we want to experience that life and experience it to the full. So, by your Holy Spirit now, come and Minister into our lives, and we want to praise and we want to worship you for those words of salvation. God, give us great words to sing, and Lord, we want to come into your presence right now as we praise you, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We give you thanks. Amen.
1: Let's stand together.